Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, and it shall never be moved. He will be judged, and the peop- uh, judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors at Sojourn. So thankful you've joined us this Christmas Eve. There is so much to remember uh, at this time of the year and to wonder at. And it is interesting, not that people gather and sing and celebrate births all the time, but that we're still doing it uh, after so many years means that this, this birth of this one must be a little bit different and unique. And, and indeed, when we look into the, the birth of Christ, we see all kinds of things that like could kind of blow our minds a bit. Right? We may not be able to grasp and understand everything as we hear these words from the Scripture that the Word became flesh. I'm reading a book, and it's been really, really helpful and fun to read. It's called God the Son Incarnate. And in it, it's just taking me deep down into the, the realities of what this means for the Son, for God the Son to become incarnate. And so much in there is stuff that I, I, I haven't yet understood, and I don't understand right now. There, you, you thought, I read in this book, it's, it talks about OKC, and you thought that meant Oklahoma City, but it really means ontological, canonic Christology, and I don't understand that either. Um, but in the midst of, of reading that and diving down deep into this birth and this, this person uh, who is God the Son, this Jesus, one of the things that we don't want to get caught up in is only those questions, only those what is going on here and how does this all work. If we think of just how it all works and we just question or we just wonder or we just puzzle about figuring it all out, we will certainly miss the mark of the sending of the Son and what He intends. Instead, we need to take our cue from those that surrounded Jesus' birth that have this proper response to His coming. And what do they do? It's so interesting when you read the the narratives of Jesus' birth, one of the things that's most prominent in that birth narrative is that there is so much praise and so much singing. Now, no doubt there was questions there. There were anxieties there. There was confusion surrounding this. Like, what's this all going to look like? What does this even all mean? All those were surely there. But what is also pronounced way more heavily than anything else is the singing, the praising 
of the one who has come. We can take our cues from the angels, right? They were the ones that came, and they had understood, like, greatness of God. And so they come, and they probably don't sing about everything that's out there. And, and they probably know more than we did at the time, right? Like, what it means for the Son to come. And yet, they don't sit around and wonder, like, what does it mean that he has now taken on flesh? What do they do? They join together in this great chorus that's this great singing of praise to their God. And Psalm 96 is a call to join in that same chorus. Make no mistake, Psalm 96 is a Christmas psalm. It calls us in to praise, to praise the Lord. This is the sum and and substance of life, to praise God, to live our lives fully for the praise of God. This is the goal for all peoples on this earth. And and this psalm comes to us and, and calls us to praise, invites us to praise in three kind of parts. We are to praise the Lord, for He is great, and He alone is God. That's the first part, verses 1 through 6. Praise the Lord, for He is King, and He alone is the one who reigns. That's 7 through 10. And praise the Lord, for He has come and is coming, and He alone restores. That's 11 through 13. You you see in this psalm this this unrestrained exuberance, one commentator says. It's in every word. It seems to be exuberant in every word. Phrase, And that's perhaps why it begins with this word, oh. Oh, it says in verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Here's this plural imperative. Not singular, but plural imperative that's given three times to sing to the Lord. Singing then is not something that's optional, as if it's on the list of here's how you can praise the Lord, and singing is one of the options you can choose from. It's not optional, it's commanded, and it's commanded three times here in these first two verses to sing to the Lord. This is a proper response to who the Lord is. Notice that in verses 1 and 2 that this singing is directed to the Lord. So it's, it's not optional, but it is directed to the Lord, and this isn't any Lord. This is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital capital D, Lord. That Lord, that is the covenant Lord, the Lord who had redeemed them from Egypt, the Lord who had made a covenant with them, who'd given them his word, who dwells in their midst. It's that Lord that they are to sing to. And notice what they are to do. They are not to sing the golden oldies, right? This isn't a call to put the oldies on repeat. Sing to the Lord a new song. New songs, they come from fresh victories, new victories. They, they come from fresh responses. They are fresh responses to the Lord's deliverances, the Lord's salvation. That's what's going on here. And verse 2 adds to us, like these new songs, to tell of salvation from day to day. Literally, you could say that is to proclaim the good news daily, continually, and they could. You might remember that this is the Lord, right? Capital L-O-R-D, who brought them across the Red Sea. And what did, he, what did they do in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, when they see that the Lord has taken them across the sea and that their enemies are behind them? What do they do? They turn and they sing a song to the Lord, saying, I'm going to sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Amen. They're talking and telling of his salvation. They're proclaiming the good news of what God has done. They were led out into the wilderness. And what happens every single day when they have a barren wasteland in front of them and they need food and they need water? Who is the one that gives them salvation? every single day by delivering bread on their front doorstep. It's God. It's this Lord. He's the one who brought fresh victories in the promised land, like the victory that he brought Deborah and Barak in Judges. In Judges chapter 5, verse 1, you know what they do? They, they turn and they sing. 
and they offer themselves and they say, bless the Lord. And we're going to bless the Lord and we're going to sing. That's what they do. Think of the salvation that God delivered for David and David's people. Even before David was the king, like they started singing out songs of God's fresh salvation every day. Hey, David has killed his tens of thousands. That was God delivering their, his people from their enemies and he's using David as part of it. Or in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, when the ark, David brings the ark up to Jerusalem and this song is, is on the agenda. Look at verse 8. What do they do with this fresh victory? Now God is going to where he told us he was going to go and he's going to dwell in the midst of his people in this place that he told us he was going to dwell and they give thanks to the Lord. They call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Indeed, 1 Chronicles 16 goes on to, to, to repeat some of the words that are in Psalm 96. So perhaps that was the original context for which they would have had these very words. But a new song is called for because a new song matches the Lord's new victories, fresh salvations that he keeps bringing to his people that he repeatedly gives. They, they match the Lord's new morning mercies. They, they would match the fresh grace that he keeps providing for his people, the fresh provision and sustaining power that he gives. For all of these, the Lord deserves praise. And, and the golden oldies alone won't do. They don't need just stale songs. They need some fresh songs for the fresh deliverances from the Lord. It's not that you're not to sing new songs exclusively. Certainly the oldies help us remember salvations in the past and sustain us for, for right now and give us courage and, and things that we need, strength for, for the present so that we can move forward. Knowing that this God has done this, He's a faithful God, we can trust Him to do it again but we do need to keep telling this salvation from day to day, and so that calls for new songs. And all of us here this morning have a reason to sing to the Lord with new songs today. Because in Him, we know, the Scripture tells us, every single one of us, we live and we move and we have our very being. If you have breath in your lungs today, you have salvation in a sense from the Lord. He has sustained you, though you didn't deserve it. He has kept your heart beating and air in your lungs. You did not do that. He has provided it for you. And why did he provide it for you? So that you might praise him. You might live for him. If you've come this morning, my, my guess is, is that you haven't fallen prey to every single temptation that's come your way. There might have been many on Christmas Eve morning as you're scrambling around to get everybody ready to get to the church because that's what we're supposed to do on Christmas Eve. So let's get there, by golly. You know, like... There might have been all kinds of temptations that flew at you. And what happened in the middle of it? I'm hoping you didn't give in to all of them. How do you overcome temptation? It wasn't your own strength and power. God provides a way out of it. We have new songs for fresh overcoming of new temptations that are constantly upon us. And for all of us here this morning, we get to sing a new song because salvation in Christ Jesus is still offered to us. Like it's still extended out. If you don't know Jesus, salvation is offered in Jesus this morning. That's a reason to sing. And if you have salvation in Jesus, again, you woke up a sinner and he's still your savior. That's a reason to sing a new song this morning. And so we all have reasons to praise the Lord. But notice a movement in verse 2. Verse 2 kind of moves us from, from directing things upward, sing to the Lord, to also moving a little bit outward to others as an overflow. And those will always go together. If you're uh, gushing forth with praise to the Lord, what will always happen is that it will also overflow outward to those around you. And that's what happens in verse 2 and 3. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That's, that's moving it outward to other people. Verse 3, declare his glories among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. The glory of the Lord, his 
greatness, his splendor, his beauty, his majesty, his supreme importance made known, his glory is to be declared to all the nations. His glory, his works should be declared far and wide. Notice all the language that we have here in these first three verses. All the earth, among the nations, all peoples. That's where it's to be known. It's that great that it should be known in all those places. Like this isn't news that should just be kept in, in a small place because it's just news for this area. No, it's, it's news for everybody and it's supposed to go out to everybody. And what's the news? That the Lord is glorious. That the Lord is great. That he alone is God. Hey, remember that this is something of what God had in mind when he called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, isn't it? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to all those nations. I'm going to do that. And so sing and want others to sing along with you. Declare those glories to others. Psalm 96, it gives the reasons that these songs should be to the Lord and broadcasted wide. So here's the sing, 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 verses 1 through 3. Declare this outward and here's why, verses 4 through 6. For he is great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So we sing, so we tell, so we declare, not first and not primarily for the things that the Lord gives, for, for the gifts of the Lord to us. That's not what he says. We, we don't sing and tell and declare first for the Lord's works and salvation. What, what do you sing, sing, sing and tell and declare for first? For what causes those things? And what causes those things? What's the source of those things? That is the greatness of our Lord. Sing because the Lord is great. And, and because the Lord is great, all those other things are true as well. But sing because the Lord is great. That's first and primary. He is inherently great. Not because of something that he does, although he works out of his greatness and character. But we sing to him because he is in and of himself Great. He is a great God. And from this great God comes salvations and wonderful works that they flow outward to peoples and the nations. And so what this does is that this sets the Lord apart from all others. He alone is God. He alone is the great God that we should praise. So the reason to sing is for him. It's for his greatness. He is to be feared, it says, above all gods. That is, we are to have a sense of awe and reverence, and trust, and affection for him that's unparalleled, that's unmatched with any other gods. Verse 5 actually says, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, he made the heavens. Don't hear the word gods here in these verses and, and think that the scripture is somehow giving some validity to idols. That's not what's happening. The term is elalim. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like you've probably heard the name for God often in the, New, in the Hebrew Old Testament is Elohim. Like he's trying to get, a, get with words, trying to say, hey, these gods are ungods. They're not gods. That's what he's getting at. With very close language to make sure everyone hears the emphasis, there's one God and then there's these ungods. And there are a whole bunch of them. The term is intentionally critical of those gods, of those small g gods. It's intentionally poking and provoking the very thoughts of those gods and of those idols. The, the Bible is really clear that the Lord alone is the creator. The Lord alone is God. He alone is great. And so all others that, that might be called gods, they, they are in a category that is separate from God. He is creator and that means all others then are created. They do not share the category with him. And there's hardly a bigger contrast than that. Like you were made and God was not. And that is massive. Isaiah, the prophet, he, he actually taunts idols and other gods in his prophecies often. He says, hey, you, you, what do you think about these, these idols? You actually, you made them and then the other part of them you threw into the fire and used for warmth. 
That's weird. Not a great God. Or, or hey, guess what? You, you have these idols and you keep carrying them around. That's weird. I'm telling you about the God that can carry you and you're carrying them. Right? They're a burden to you when this God wants to carry your burdens. That's a different set of Amen. character in that God. They can hardly sustain your life because they have no life. They themselves being created. But he says, but the Lord alone. He, he is the creator. And so verse 6, splendor and majesty, they're before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What always is emanating, pulsing forth from God is that he is impressive in every way, in every space. There's not one place, not one angle you could look at God where there's something wrong here, there's a shadow here, there's something not right. Every place you can look at him, every angle, he is impressive. His place is radiant. You could think about the Holy of Holies. When Moses goes in to meet with the Lord, what happens to his face? It comes out shining because emanating from him is this splendor and majesty that even kind of somehow gets attached to Moses' face. So that they're like, hey, we can't look at your face. That's strange. Like that's a reflection of the splendor and majesty of the Lord that he had been speaking to. Verses 4 through 6, they declare, the Lord is great, He alone is God. And because that's true, this is why we sing, 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 and declare and tell of verses 1 through 3. One author said this, that, that where God is, there is singing. God's people are a singing people. You look at the pages of the Old Testament, they're singing. We have a whole psalm book in front of us, they're singing. In the New Testament, you look at Jesus' birth, what's pronounced there? All kinds of singing. Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, what does he do with his disciples? He sings with them. Paul and Silas, they're in prison. What do they do when they're there? They're singing. Why? Because that's what God's people do. Paul instructs the church to be singing, instructing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing these things to one another. You, you look at the open views in heaven, and what is happening so often there? They are singing. Where God is, there is singing because this is part of the proper response to the greatness of this God. Because he is great, because he alone is God, we sing forth because of all that he is and all that he has done. We praise the Lord. There's exuberance in this psalm because of the Lord's greatness, his glory, his majesty being beyond compare. He's incomparable. He's unparalleled. And when something is like that, normal words won't do it, will they? So that's why we sing. I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam is told to name the animals. You remember this? He, he names them, and he's looking at them, and he's like, there's not one like me. And then God, he makes one like Adam and presents her to him. And what does he do? He, he sees and recognizes right away, whoa, this is like me. And what does he do in that? He sings. At last, here's one that's like me. Or in Exodus chapter 15, right, they come across the Red Sea. They see that their enemies are defeated. All those gods that were coming with them that looked like they were bearing down on them, going to destroy them, were just washed away in the sea. And there they are on the other side, safe. And they sing, because what else could they do after such a great deliverance? Or you look in heaven, and they're singing all over the place. When something is great and worthy of praise, we sing, because other words won't do. Amen. Now, my least favorite class in elementary school, you probably know, if you know me well, you know what this is. It was music. Did not like music class. It's the least favorite. I mean, I'd rather do science, math, reading. Like, give me something. My favorite was PE. Let's go there. Let's, let's avoid music and go to PE. And I did not like it. I did not like singing. Until the Lord changed my heart. Now I love singing. It's been a, such a joy just to sing a few songs with you guys here this morning. What a privilege. 
What a joy that we get to do that. What happened, right? God captured my attention and my affection. Now all of a sudden, words are good, but they just won't do. Even songs won't even do. I can't even figure out, like I keep singing these songs and that seems really great, but there seems to be more and one day we'll realize that, won't we? Now perhaps you're here this morning and you don't feel like singing or you don't like singing. Maybe you're like me. If you've trusted in this God and you don't feel like singing, times are hard or whatever the scenario is, here's my suggestion. Sing anyway. Lead your soul. Lead it. Sing, and then what are they doing in this psalm? They're just beholding God, His character, who He is, what He is like. So sing and and behold and recall all that the Lord is and all that He has done. And think about how He created. And think about how He's redeemed. Think about all those things. And then do all those things and then sing again. Like Do all those things and see if your heart isn't led to praise the Lord because He is great. If there is no desire to sing or no desire to declare others the glories of the Lord, here's what's certainly true. It's because God isn't thought of or revered as great. Or He isn't thought of or revered as that great. Maybe we're not convinced that He alone is God. Or at least not a great God. We will not worship. We will not praise. We will not put songs to things that are just kind of okay. Not for very long if we do. So if your singing and praise is stale, that is going to be a reflection of your heart toward whatever you're singing to. If your singing to the Lord is stale, if it is lifeless, that is a reflection of your heart toward God. The exuberance from this psalm that gushes forth is because the Lord is great and He alone is God. He is the one who is deserving of this praise and so He gushes forth. This is the God who is in comparable, who's unparalleled. And if we don't believe that, we cannot match this psalm or fulfill these commands here because our hearts are not captured by the greatness of this God. It may be that other things are being experienced in life as greater. Maybe even as God. Maybe it's a field with a ball. Like I experienced this as a greater joy and glory. Maybe it's political power or a close relationship that seems to be the thing that is fulfilling and satisfying me. Or maybe you think with with AI or military might or the world that we live in, do we even need this God anymore? And let's not be unaware that although our idols look different than what they would have looked like then, that they're just as present as they were before. And one way that God has given His people to combat idols in our own lives is to sing and to praise with new songs for His greatness, for His fresh salvations. Nothing else... And no one else is creator. Nothing else and no one else can give life and sustain life. That all the idols are going to go the way that Isaiah said they were going to go, right? One time or another, at some point, if you are serving something other than the one true living God, it will be a burden to you and not actually carry your burdens. That will happen. Only this God is the one who can carry your burdens. Only this God is the one who doesn't have to be lifted up by you one day. This God is like no other. Listen to the way that Isaiah talks about this God. He asks a whole bunch of questions. In that same chapter as he's taunting these other gods, he asks these questions in Psalm 40. I'll just read a few of them in verse 12. Uh, Again, these are stoking our, our fires in our hearts to look at the greatness of this God. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Can you imagine that? All the waters right here. Who's marked off the heavens with a span? 
Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Like we're spending tons of money to get dynamite to blow holes in it so we can drive through it. And he's just like, this is nothing in my scale because he is great. Or I love the ending of Job. It's so humbling. What does he come to Job doing? He comes asking him questions like, hey, have you considered the mountain goat? Have you thought about the ostrich? Maybe Leviathan. You thought about that lately? Or do you know where the storehouses of snow are or how I make lightning go? And what's he getting at over and over again? I'm great, Job. I alone am God. I am great. I'm worthy to be praised. And now the overflow of thinking about those things, about who God is and his character, comes this overflow of look at creation. Wow, that's great. And because that's great, the God who made it must be great. And out comes praise. Out comes this desire to tell all of the glories of this God. This Lord is great and he alone is God. Not only is he the creator, but the one through whom and for whom all things were created. What did he do? He came. No other has stepped down like this God. No other has lived a perfect life, fully human and fully God, like Jesus Christ. No one else has died like this God. What idol is going to die for you? John says at some point, like, hey, someone might be willing to die for a righteous person. But for an unrighteous person, or Paul says that, I don't know, this person, I don't think anyone's going to dare even die, but maybe. My guess is that your idols are in that maybe, but probably not. And yet God displays his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ dies for us, and he raises, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shows us in all of those things that he is great, and he alone is God. And so we can, in response to that, praise the Lord that his nature, his creation, his redemption are so great that they're echoing in eternity. And this psalm says, why don't you join in that right now? And he is so great and so magnificent. His glories are so wonderful that an hour and a half on Sunday isn't going to cut it. The only the people in this room, not going to work. That's what this psalm says. Couldn't be that an hour and a half on a Sunday is going to be enough for this God couldn't be that just this people in this room at this certain location is going to be enough for this God and what he's worthy of. He says all the earth needs to be doing this, all peoples all around. And so we're coming and we're saying this God is so great that I can't even just give words, I have to sing, and that he's also so great that, that these words won't even stay in. They not only move upward, that they move outward to tell the nations because we've got to get them in on this too. All right, so Psalm 96, man, the exuberance seems to be at a zenith. It's hit its peak, right? We should just stop and sing. But you know what? He just keeps going on. So we're going to take our cues from Psalm 96 and keep going. And he says, praise the Lord. He is great. He alone is God. But now, verses 7 through 10, they call for praising the Lord because he's king. And he alone reigns. So verse 6 already kind of moved us in this direction using some kingly language. Splendor and majesty that perform strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Think about that. His, his throne is in a sanctuary, the beauty and glory of that. But he continues, verse 7 and 8. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Three times again we have this plural imperative, this plural command. And so again and again we're directed to, to do something to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. It's directed to him, not elsewhere. Ascribe is to give him glory. And, and here's what he says here. This is the glory that he's due. It's due to his name, his name that represents all that he is, all that he has done. It sums up his character and his person. He says, give him the glory that's due to his name. And again, the glory is due to him, not because of gifts that he gives, but because of him himself, right? Who he is. 
he is so due glory that he says, now you need to bring an offering before him. All families of the earth, all peoples, all nations is what he's getting at. You need to bring an offering. That's what's due. The, the invitation is far and wide here in these verses. All people can recognize. They can look at this God, look at what he's done, look at who he is, and recognize that he alone is worthy of worship. That he alone is, worthy, uh, is God and worthy to be acknowledged as God, even with an offering. We don't ask him to bring something. We bring something to him. And, and all can come to worship this God. That, that word worship is this idea of coming and bowing down before him. There's, there's kingly words tied up there. This is the king. They had served other kings, followed other kings. And they're saying, come here and bow before this king. He alone is the king. He alone reigns. That's why he's described, and the worship of him is described in a certain manner. Look at verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Again, bow down before him in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Right, they're to be holy because in response to their God, this is a holy God and he wants holy worship and holy worshipers. And so the response of a holy God is holy worship. You're to tremble before him because this God is an awesome God. When you, when you see him, you come before him with trembling because of who he is. And what's the reason that all these peoples are to ascribe, 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 and to worship and to tremble? Because the Lord is king and he alone reigns. Verse 10 says this, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the, Lord, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. All peoples are to know and recognize God is king and he alone reigns, that he is unmatched as king. And all peoples could know this, right? Like we look at Pharaoh and not only himself, but all the gods that he could have brought, they were put down, right? No question about who won the battle royale between the Egyptian gods and the one true living God. That was their gods and their people were buried in the sea and God's people made it across the other side. Or we could look to Baal with Elijah. He goes up and he challenges their gods, their god, Baal. Hey, you bring out your best and we're going to call on our gods and we'll see which god is really the god. All right? And he starts taunting him because he knows their god is no god. But he calls on his, his god. And he says, for the glory of your name, would you show them? And he shows them unparalleled, undefeated. Or I love the story of Dagon, the, the Philistine god. When the ark is brought into the same place as Dagon, Dagon keeps falling over. Like again, this is a burdensome idol. right? He, we, can't, we can't even prop him up. We've got to fix him. We've got all kinds of problems here. In other words, what those all show us is the Lord alone reigns. Amen. That he alone is king. If those gods reigned, the story would have went differently. And if they reigned the world would be such an unstable place. The gods of the world are, are constantly shifting and changing. They're kind of capricious. I mean, if you read some of the stories of, of Greek gods or Roman gods, like they're, they're a little bit moody at times. You never know when they're going to fly off the handle at one another or they're going to be mad at some human for some random reason. Like they have, they have all kinds of issues. And if the world is in their hands, then this world is a really unstable place. But if the Lord reigns, who created the world, then all that's in it is secure in him. And that's what verses 10 is saying. It's all his, and he alone reigns, so it's secure in him. Only in the Lord and in his reigning can there be trust of some sort of stability and consistency in this world. So if you think it's chaotic, you're like, like you need to go back to the source. That he alone is the creator and sustainer, and he is the one who is the king who reigns. He made it, he can sustain it as king. Which means, in the midst of whatever calamity is going on, we can know if he's king, he's creator, he's sustainer, that he's still reigning over it. And so in the midst of that, we can say, yeah, 
The world's established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. It's not saying that, that there's not problems in the world or the world doesn't seem unstable, but that it's actually in stable, stable hands. And this world and all who dwell in it, they're the Lord's. The world and its inhabitants are not reigning. God is reigning. And here's how it's seen in judgment. Right? The judge is the one that's ultimately in charge. Like the final say when the gavel falls, that's the one who's in charge. Whatever he says goes. I think of Judge Judy. I used to watch that as a kid. She says, in my courtroom, I can say whatever I want. Right? And that's the Lord. And guess what his courtroom is? Guess where his judgments fall? All over what he created. And he can say and do whatever he wants. And the Lord is king. He alone reigns. He alone will judge. Which, here's what that ensures for all of us. That ensures that the judgment will be with equity, as he says here. Completely just. Fully righteous. Perfect. Only if the Lord is judged will that be true. He, the one who created and sustains and reigns, is the only fitting judge of those who dwell on this earth. And only one can judge with perfection, fully righteous, and with complete justice, and that's the Lord. I, I love what one commentator said. History and society are not left to the capriciousness of fickle gods or the arbitrary decisions of human rulers. Instead, the Lord will rule with righteousness and faithfulness. There is a power that sets things right, a might that can be trusted. And that's good news. That the Lord alone is king and he alone reigns is really good news. Does it seem strange that the, the verse 7, the commands, ascribe, 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 three times he says ascribe and worship and tremble are because of verse 10, because he's going to judge Doesn't that sound like those don't fit to us? But we need to know that in light of gods, in light of idols, that this is really good news. You might know this in the recent debate of the college football playoff committee. They come together, the greatest, best minds, they come together and they pick four teams that they think are the best teams to have a playoff so we can declare a winner. And at the end of their judgments, what we can always know is that they could never be fully consistent. And that at the end of the day, they are just opinions. They do not know who is actually the four best teams to put together so that we can see who ultimately is the best team. It is just their opinion in the end. And you could probably justify any opinion that they come up with. They will find a justification for it, even though it might not seem right or true. And so you have teams that are going to be left out that are feeling like injustice has been done. And teams that are put in like maybe they shouldn't have been in. You're going to have that all the time with human judges, with gods of this world. If left to others, judgment could be all kinds of varied. But if the Lord is king and he alone reigns, then we can be assured that we will have right judgment in the end because we have a right reign over us now. This means that whatever other gods or any, whatever other gods we might be living for, whatever other thing we might be living for, not only is their reign non-existent, not only is their reign subservient, their judgment is iffy, but their approval and their judgment in the end doesn't even matter because their judgment doesn't count in the end. Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a world? What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? What does it profit you if you gain the approval of your God and your idol if in the end that judgment doesn't matter and you lose your soul? Only the Lord reigns as king and only he judges. And so whose approval and whose judgment do we need to be living for? Let me ask it this way. Whose judgment and approval are you living for right now? And then now let's ask the question again. Whose judgment and approval should you be living for? Only one is going to matter in the end. 
That's why we go back to verse 7. We ascribe to this Lord greatness and glory because He alone is King and He alone reigns. And so we need to live our lives with Him as the true King, living for His approval because we know that His judgment is the one that counts in the end. And all peoples are called into this. Praise the Lord. He is King and He alone reigns. He alone is judge and He alone will judge. The, the call to praise in verses 1 through 3 was first to, it seems, primarily God's people. This was Israel primarily in mind. Verses 7, t- 7 through 10 was a call to all the nations. All these peoples are now to come and worship. And here's what we see in verse 11. The heavens be glad. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in His faithfulness. Sing, sing, sing. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Let, let, let. We have all these plural commands and each one, it seems like each time, it's reverberating further and further out. Doesn't it seem like that? Each time, it goes further out than it was the time before. This is a God who is so great that He sends ripples, or maybe we say waves, out from His greatness that go out to all the earth. And it hits His people, and it hits peoples of all nations, and it hits even creation itself. You see creation itself turning and praising, turning in worship, turning in praise to this one true living God. What a picture that God is bringing to this earth, what He made it for. And why is creation so glad? It's really strange, isn't it? Verse 13. Why is everything so glad? Because He comes. He comes to judge. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. That's probably not what we would put in there. Why is the world so glad? And we would have put something else. And His says, why is the world so glad? Because He comes, and He comes to judge. Praise the Lord for He comes, or He is coming. That's the idea of these verbs. Twice it says that He's coming, and when He comes, He's going to judge. That, that may not make all of us sing. That may make some of us, when we think about He's coming, and He's coming to judge, that may make some of us fear and tremble because we're afraid. But what verse 13 points to in a world that's kind of like Psalm 2 where the nations are raging is it points to a God who's coming to put all things right. When we see that word judge, that's what he's getting at there. He is coming to put all things right. The idea of putting all things right is the idea of restoring right order, right harmony, the right kind of universe that he made. And when does it happen, he says? When he comes. He is coming. That's the future of Psalm 96. And when he comes, this is what he's bringing with him. It will come with him for sure. He is going to judge the world, restore the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. When he comes, he will judge and restore. And so God's people and all the nations and even all the creation are called in response to this coming judge to praise the Lord. And perhaps on Christmas Eve, we have a unique vantage point, and maybe it's more obvious that we have great reason at this time to join in this celebration that he calls for from the people and the nations and now all of creation. Because here we have the coming judge, a future coming of God to set things right, and we get to sing joy to the world for the Lord has come. We get to sing that. We get to see that not only is it a future promise, but he has come. When God the Son descended to become God the Son incarnate, what happened? Singing. Praising. Listen to what Mary does in Luke chapter 1. Mary is told of the coming 
of the king, and she does this. She sings, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of her heart. There's a just, righteous God coming, she says. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In other words, here's a God who's coming to restore. He's putting all things right. That's what she's singing. The, the angels upon Jesus' birth, listen to their song that they're singing in verse 10. They say, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or, or turn the page over to Simeon. Simeon has been longing for and waiting for the, the coming deliverance. And here's what he says as he takes Jesus in his arms. He blesses God and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's singing according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then we see in verse 38, here's this other one named Anna and she is there and she sees this and she starts to give thanks to the Lord and is thankful that he has come as she had been waiting on the redemption of his people. And what happens after that? Then the nations show up and they start bringing an offering. They bring an offering. They start praising this Lord too. Jesus, he starts his ministry and he begins with this invitation, repent. That's a call to worship. You're worshiping other things? Worship me. Repent. For the kingdom of God, this righteous reign and rule, the righteous kingdom is what? It's at hand. It's come. And he began then going about setting things right. Disease, you're gone. Demon, get out of here. Like he does that because he's the king. He alone reigns. And what does he also do? He comes and sets things right. And the biggest wrong that he needs to set right is sin against the holy God. And what does he come to do? He comes to atone for sins. And to do that, God the Son incarnate takes sin on himself, on the cross. And it's so sufficient, this offering. So sufficient, this sacrifice, that it is declared by God as paid in full as he's raised from the dead. And all peoples of all nations that dwell on this earth are invited into this. In other words, their sins aren't so bad that they can't have a place because of the atonement of this God. They get to take part in this reality. All are invited with the reality in front of them that if you trust in this God, you will be judged righteous in the end because of what he has done. And you will not perish. And so great is this God who came and lived and died that after he is raised, the view that we get of him in heaven is they keep singing new songs over and over again of the lamb who was slain because he'd made atonement for sins. But as we look at the birth, we, we look around this world and we, we know that all things are set right yet. It's still really broken. I didn't have to tell you that as you probably got up this morning. You knew something's broken in me and you look around and maybe it's in your family. Something's broken there. You looked at the news. Something's broken there. We know that not all things are set right. And so what Christmas does is it reminds us of his coming, but it also points us forward to a coming again. Amen. His first coming was such a gracious coming. Right? He says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But his next coming will not be like that. Listen to Matthew chapter 25. 
He's going to come and He's going to come to judge. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne because He alone is God. He alone reigns. He alone is judge. And before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And He will say to the others, Depart from me. Are any worse words ever uttered? This is the one who has come and is coming again. He alone is God. This is the one who alone is judge. He alone reigns. And this is the one who alone will restore and put things right. And how fitting that he is. The one who felt death sting, the one who took death upon himself, is the coming judge. This is, not, this is one who is infinitely qualified to judge all the living and the dead. And if you trust in Him, you can know that you have one who understands your weakness but also is full of grace for those who would come to Him. And so what do we do in between these comings? In between the, the time that He has come and the time that He will come to judge? There's groanings in the middle of that, right? Romans 8, from us, from creation. But this psalm doesn't leave us in doubt. Like, what are we to do? We're to sing. We're to sing, sing, sing. We're to ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Let us, let us, let us. That's what we're to be doing. If you trust in Him, like you can know that He has come and He has not brought condemnation for you, but instead He has given you salvation in His name. And so in light of that Creator coming to redeem and be Redeemer for you, sing. Like, we know what to do. We need to, we need to let it go. Like, let's, let's sing. Because he came. And we do that knowing he's going to come. So we look around. All things aren't right. But I know he's come. And I know he's coming. And when he comes again, he's coming as judge. And he alone is qualified. He judged me. And I didn't deserve this righteous standing that I have. But he took it for me. My sin. My condemnation. So that I might have his right standing. So anyway, in the end, I see him as both just and the justifier. And I can sing forth his praise knowing that if he came. He will certainly come again. In between, all peoples are invited in. And all God's people are sent out. What does he say? Go make disciples of all nations. And so in between these comings, what would you do? Would you trust this God as God alone, as king, as coming judge? If you do, then we know what to do. Let's take our cues from the angels that surrounded Jesus' birth and the angels in heaven and let's sing forth the praise of the Lord that's due his name. Let's pray together.